Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 138 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Brent Heath of Brent and Becky's Bulbs, all about forcing bulbs into bloom. The plant profile is on Daphne, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Terry Spate of Cottage in the Court, who shares the last word on sustainable landscapes. This episode, we're rejoined by returning guest Brent Heath of Brent and Becky Bulbs. And he was on episode 127 back in November talking about unusual and specialty flower bulbs. And we had to have him back to talk about bulb forcing and all types of flower forcing. And welcome back, Brent. Well, thank you, Kathy. I'm delighted to be with you. Great to have you. So it's the beginning to mid of February now and bulbs foliage at least is popping out of the ground but how is it in your area of Gloucester Virginia looking right now well we've had a mild winter we've had daffodil rainville's early sensation in bloom for about a month and even before that a cute little one a wild one from Spain called Cantabricus so we've had daffodils the crocuses are all popping right now uh, the Ipheon's just beginning to bloom. I've got some very early muscari in my garden. And the Aranthus hymalis, the winter aconites, are doing their thing. So it's it's getting quite lovely here. And camellias are just booming out every day. It's amazing. Yeah, I do recall visiting Brent and Becky Bulbs and seeing you had quite a camellia collection there. I do indeed, and it gets bigger every year. I got the bug now, and <laughs> I, I see you on Facebook every morning or most mornings with your new book, and I hope it's going well. But I also see all my camellia friends who are posting pictures, and I, I still have some on my want list that I don't yet have. <laughs> There's always one more, right? Yes, indeed. So you're a couple of weeks ahead of D.C. as far as the blooms, but we are seeing early crocus. Uh, snowdrops are still, of course, prolific. And I have my February gold just about to burst open. Um, so right on time for those. No sign of muscari yet, so I'm going to look out for those. Well, they're very early blooming muscari cultivar. And boy, I should have a catalog in front of me because I don't recall the name. It's a real easy one for forcing. I, it may be Alida, but um, it's one that just forces with very little cold period and blooms extremely early. Here it is. It is Alida, A-L-I-D-A. And it's one that forces just very, very easily. So um, it's one everybody should have on their radar. Very short vernalization or cold period required also. So a great one. So we'll get into all those terms and what those mean. And is this, I assume, a violet-purple colored muscari? 
<laughs> you know, color is a personal perception. Mm-hmm. I call it um, deep navy blue, but ah. uh, that could be violet also. You know, we just each describe colors a little differently, don't we? Mm-hmm. And, you know, different light, different times of day can look a different color. Absolutely. And then I imagine in your catalog, the print one versus online, that must be so hard to try to get those colors true for all those different bulbs. Well, I I shoot the majority of the pictures and I am always looking for it at peak time and at peak light. So we try to show it as close as it is consistently, but uh, times and, and light vary. So. Yeah, and I think it also depends on how your monitor is calibrated as well. Indeed, but that's all up to Jay. He he does all that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, I, I do have a PhD, you know, so I, I do have a nice Canon 5D with a full frame. But uh, I, I ended up uh, using it, the little button up front that says push your dummy. On automatic, (laughs) it almost always takes the best picture for me. I do use um, a light diffuser, a a shade thing, or a diffuser to get the right light on it. Mm -hmm. Good tip. Yeah, and so we're talking this episode about forcing, and it's such a funny term. So let's define that first. Well, fooling Mother Nature getting a plant to bloom out of its normal time frame. So what causes them to bloom in some instances is day length. In other instances, it has to do with warmth. So there are two factors that cause a flower to bloom. And the early ones are more affected often by warmth. Um but a combination of the two, but it's fooling, tricking Mother Nature into blooming early so that you can enjoy them in the cold or the winter and blooming inside your house where it's nice and toasty warm. And then when they're finished blooming and the soil thaws out, you can look for those empty spots in your garden and transplant them right into your garden after having enjoyed them the first year inside. Yeah, I think that's a a common question of a lot of people who try forcing Brent is, do we just discard and compost the bulbs because they've pushed out so much energy in that forcing process? Or do you recommend planting them? And then how long does it take for them to recover if you do so? I believe in repurpose, reuse and recycle. So I think that it may take them a year to catch back up to bloom to their first standard that first year you have them bloom but certainly we put them back out in the garden you can compost them and we'll you can buy more bulbs next year we'd be happy to send you more but my personal preference is is to find a and in the spring is when you see all the empty spots where you forgot to plant last fall so you can fill in those empty spots so for me that's a win-win to plant them out great point and so you don't have to wait 
that's another question a lot of people have with their forced bulbs is should they wait till the foliage dies back? Should they wait till it dries out? Plant it right away, you're saying? No, I, I do it right. Um, it can't be f- hard freezing outside when you mm-hmm. do it because you would burn the foliage and you'd shock them. But after danger, of, you know, light frost is not a problem. So after danger of hard freeze is over, you can plant them out. And what about those hyacinths that are forced in water and form those super long water roots? Do you trim those off and then plant them? I I think the whole thing of forcing in water is a, a cute idea, but it ain't. It's not the right. It's not the optimum way to achieve the best bloom. The bulbs, tender root hairs, need some soil. So we do almost all of ours on soil instead mm-hmm. of in water. Because water provides no nutrient value to them. The soil does. So, um, and still, you can plant them out. Just they're certainly not going to have 50 blooms per stem. They may only have 5 to 10 blooms per stem that next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about the big Dutch hyacinth bulbs that are uh, sold like with a forcing glass, you know, those traditional ones. I mean, it's fun to see those long roots emerge, but some of them can, you know, be four to six inches long. And then you're like, I don't think that should go into the soil. (laughs) And I think kids enjoy seeing that root. Mm -hmm. It's a fun lesson for kids to see those roots emerging and see how they look because you can't see them once they're in the soil. But for the best result, grow them in a good coarse growing media and um, let you want three times the height of the bulb with soil underneath. So they get a good root system. And actually those grown in soil last longer in bloom and perform better than those grown on water. Hmm. Good to know. In my humble opinion. Yeah, and I think you could always experiment by doing some bulbs either way in in soil or in water and seeing how they last in bloom versus that. And then also they'd be getting more nutrients, obviously, taken up into the roots and be able to recover faster when you do plant them outside. Indeed. So, Kathy, one part you haven't covered is these spring flowering bulbs we're talking about Unlike the paper whites from the Mediterranean warm climate and the hippiastrums from the warmer climate or greenhouse culture that do not require a cold period, all of these other spring flowering bulbs do require a significant period called vernalization where the buds actually develop within the bloom with the cool temperatures. And the cool temperatures are basically somewhere about 35 degrees if you're doing them in a refrigerator, if you're dry cooling the bulbs in a refrigerator, no fruits or vegetables, so you have to use the beer fridge. Um, But you can put early bloomers in for eight to 10 weeks, take them out, root them, and the rooting temperature is important. They root best between 50 and 60 degrees. Once fully rooted, about two weeks, you'll see roots coming out of the bottom of the pot. Then you can actually start forcing them. So often, we find it's a little easier to dry cool the bulbs, and we actually sell dry cool bulbs that we put in the cooler in September. We ship them out in early, in late November, early December for people to force or for snowbirds living in Florida where planted outside, they don't get enough cold to trigger them to bloom. 
Hmm. That's a great point that those in the southern region cannot plant bulbs in the ground because it would be just too warm and they don't have that long enough cooling period for them. So they can buy um, from you and from others what what is called pre-chilled is usually what you'll see it listed as. That's correct. Hmm. And of course, you'll see them potted up in grocery stores at this time of year as well and sold as, you know, just a, a bouquet or a floral plant as well. Indeed. And Kathy, this is an interesting little piece of information that most people don't realize. 80% of the flower bulbs that are grown in the Netherlands are actually grown for selling on pots. And notice it said on pots and not in pots. You know, when you're, when you're growing them um, for inside culture, you don't need to bury them three times the height of the bulb deep. You need to leave three times the height of the bulb with soil underneath because they need that good soil. And when you're planting them out in the garden, that's when you need to plant them three times the height deep. But um, the majority of the bulbs are grown for pot culture and for picking the flowers for the cut flower market. We call it cut flower, but you actually pick daffodils. You don't cut them. Interesting. And yeah, so that's a great tip when you're potting up the bulbs that you're forcing, you want them barely under the soil, like towards the top, maybe just a little bit peeking out. That's correct. So the soil up around their shoulders, we call them the top edge of the bulb or the, you know, the rounded top edge. And so you're chilling your bulbs just straight in the bags the way they they come and I've been chilling them already potted up. Is there a difference to that, those two techniques? Well, sweetheart, you can, you can put a whole lot more bulbs dry in bags than you can in pots. <laughs> That's so, very true. Thank you. And remember, no fruits or vegetables in the refrigerator. They give off ethylene gas, which would cause the bulbs to abort their blooms. So you need to choose the beer fridge. Don't drink a lot of beer in the winter, so you can fill it full of bulbs or pots of bulbs. <laughs> yes, or if you have that extra fridge or beverage fridge somewhere or just a dedicated space for that. Indeed. And it can also be done in an unheated garage. Um, but it's a little more iffy because you can't really control the temperature range as well there. Yeah, I was going to ask because for professionals who are doing bulb forcing, say for the floral trade or for an event like the Philadelphia Flower Show, they're doing it obviously not in a fridge uh, or someplace, but they're probably potting them up and doing them in greenhouses where they can control the temperatures and the amount of sunlight. If they're still doing it, a few years back, we did most of the bulbs for the Philadelphia show, and we instructed them on how to dry cool them and then pot them up and root them at 50 to 60 degrees and then put them in a greenhouse with plenty of light. So the bulbs do not need light, and actually light may be detrimental when you're pre-cooling them. Um it don't have to be absolutely dark, but it's better if they are uniformly cool. And a greenhouse that's hard to keep control temperatures. So most bulbs are done in a in a rooting room and then brought out into the greenhouse when it's time to actually force them. And bottom heat is also an important factor. If you want them to come quickly, 
If they're sitting on a 70-degree heat mat, the seedling heat mat, they will come very quickly. But the next thing is a cooler room is better than a warmer room. Most houses are 70 degrees and above. Hmm. And actually, if you're forcing them with a heat mat under them, but the room temperature is 50 degrees, they will naturally stay a lot shorter and be a lot better. But then the most important feature is the amount of light. Most people think sunlight coming through a window is adequate. That is actually the equivalent of relatively heavy shade. And that's why they tend to stretch. So an easy fix for that is a cool light source about a foot above them. So the modern LED light bulbs put off very little heat, which would cause the bulbs to stretch too. But that extra light a foot above them will keep them nice and compact. And, of course, grow lights are sold, and they are wonderful as well. Cool fluorescents work fine. It's just the bright, in warm incandescence you want to avoid. But the light source about a foot above makes all the difference in the world in how tall they grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen a lot of forcing being done indoors where the, the tulips or whatever they're forcing are just really stretched out. And they get that kind of very pale green look to the foliage as well. That's right. A bit chlorotic looking. And, and uh, the stretching simply is a lack of light. They're trying to find the light. And when you plant them outdoors in your garden, if you plant them in the shade, you know, they're going to stretch all except those very early bloomers that are growing under deciduous trees that leaf out late. Then the leaves get enough light. You know, the bulbs leaves are actually solar collectors and the bulbs themselves are the batteries. The leaves produce starches and sugars and they Bulbs are the receptacles that hold those starches and sugars for next year's bloom. So um, just keep that in mind. I find that if it's fairly simple, we tend to understand it a little bit better. But leave solar collectors, bulbs, batteries. So they all do best with plenty of light. Hmm. And when you're potting up for forcing, do you add any fertilizer into the mix or maybe fertilizer after that point? If you were going to plant them in your garden, uh, a little uh, nutrient in the soil. Remember, though, have more minerals. Um, Boy, we use a good compost media with pine bark, and that has plenty of nutrient in it. But uh, if you want to, we brew compost tea in our greenhouses to fertigate our plants also. Go low on nitrogen. Too much nitrogen causes bulbs to make a lot of blooms at the expense of, I mean, a lot of leaves at the expense of blooms. Mm -hmm. So go light on nitrogen. Slow release is better than quick release. Um, But generally people do not fertilize the bulbs that you're growing already have all everything the blooms in them they made them in the growers field so you're just enjoying them but if you are going to put them out in your garden you may use a little bit of mix in some bulb tone that organic fertilizer from espoma that's readily available mix that into your soil a little bit but not too much 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point that, you know, the bulbs are the batteries, as you say, and they have everything they need to bloom for forcing already packed into them. Yes, indeed. And so what are your favorites to force into bulb, uh, into early bloom? For And I was just going to uh, say that species tulips have been my absolute favorites. And I agree with you. They're awesome and I underutilized somewhat. They're nice and compact to begin with. Some have a lovely fragrance, and you've got a wonderful range of colors. So the other thing is when you are putting bulbs in a pot, as opposed to putting them outside, typically we plant bulbs outside in the garden three times their width apart. In a pot, we typically put them in shoulder to shoulder, touching each other. So you have a nice compact. And the species tulips are wonderful. The miniature daffodils are awesome. Um, most of the Tazetta type daffodils, so Tazetta meaning tiny cups in the Italian language, which are native to the Mediterranean, force very easily. The paper whites and their kin are Tazettas, and they're easy to force. They are very small because they're such early bloomers naturally. They have a very short cold period required. Um, in addition to that, other daffodils, I, I like the shorter, the naturally shorter ones. And, of course, all the miniature daffodils are shorter in stature. But um, there are a number of early ones, the cyclaminius-type daffodils, are all great forcers. They're nice and compact. Plus, they have attractive leaves uh, that are dark green and, and uh, nice and, and stiff. The Jonquilla types are probably my favorite of all. They're the ones that are used mostly in breeding because they have such a delightful fragrance. The Tazettas or the Jonquillas have a fragrance that's um, more on the sweet side, a little like honeysuckle or not quite gardenias. The the Tazetta types, the multi-flowered ones, often have a bit of a musky edge to them. Some paper whites in particular, some people think they smell wonderful and others check the bottom of their shoes, see what kind of poop <laughs> they stepped in. Mm-hmm. Fragrance, again, a personal perception. I Almost everybody loves the Jonquilla fragrance. And some very nice and easy ones, for instance, one of our hybrids, the longest, one of the longest lasting in bloom called Golden Echo is a great one for forcing. And it's naturally short, but the flowers last for a long time. So we think that's an added value. Uh, a miniature one that we did, we, we mistakenly thought we were naming an acute name because we thought we were baby boomers, but Becky and I were born a year too early. But baby boomer produces up to 10 blooms per stem, and a good-sized bulb produces two or three stems. So, And it's a delightful, sweet fragrance that the French used to make a perfume from the Jonquillo-type daffodils. So that just a couple... Uh, do you want more? I can keep going as long as you want. Um, yeah. I was just going to say tete-a-tete, I think, is one that's easily available. And, and that's fun because it has, you know, several flowers on there. does indeed. And do you know it's the world's most numerous daffodil? Hmm. There are that's- more tete-a-tetes than any other daffodil, they say. Hmm. So 
It's it, and it's because it's sold so frequently. Every gas station in in Europe, you go into in the <laughs> in the early spring or in the late winter, and they have pots of tetadet for sale. How many gas stations have you been in the United States that have tetadets or anything plants? Maybe we're beginning to see a few. And then there's a double tete-a-tete called Tet Blue Clay, which has rose-like flowers. It's lovely, too. Hmm. And how about some of the minor bulbs? I, I like to do muscari kind of as an Easter basket of forcing. I disagree with your terminology. Oh. <laughs> I don't think there's anything minor about any of those oh, little bulbs, lovely little bulbs. <laughs> we, we like to call them special. <laughs> so, sorry. I'm just teasing. Um, but. Um, anemones are wonderful in pots. Anemone blanda in particular work really well and quite easy. Good to soak the their funny little tubers that have been coated in wax. It's best to soak them before you plant them. But um, they are, are only two or three inches tall and extremely wonderfully floriferous. The bigger anemones also. But Chianodoxa, the glory of the snow, is an amazing little one that forces very easily. And all of these very early bloomers have that short vernalization time. And I love crocuses and pots. Um, you know, the Philadelphia Flower Show, I get to judge every five years or so, and I really enjoy, you know, that's where more bulbs are forced in this country than any other place. It, um, it's it's incredible. But the pots of crocuses, are they just cram them in the pot, and you get this pot that's uniformly just bright colors. It's, it's awesome. And the, 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 the crocuses are also fragrant, which a lot of people don't realize. Too cold outside to smell them. And um, moving right along, I've got a catalog in front of me, and I'm flipping pages. The galanthus are, are fun and also fragrant and force nicely. Um, most the galanthophiles all think they have to be in that special spot, and, but um, we love them, and they're great in pot on pots as well. Do you know we grow every bulb in our catalog on a pot, so we display them in the spring um, on bleachers out like out in front. The little ipheon is a wonderful little special bulb. Highly critter-resistant, sweet-smelling flowers, but when you crush the foliage, it smells like garlic breath. There's those little star flowers, nickname for them. You know, there's nothing common about plants. We have to stop calling them common names. They're nicknames. Well, those little star flowers are awesome, as awesome on a pot as they are in your yard. They grow beautifully in amongst grass. And little Irish reticulatas, oh, grape-like fragrance. And amazing, cute little babies in your garden. Uh, Muscari, um, the early ones force easily. The bigger ones are great on pots, too. You just don't try to get them forced as early as. And then the Scyllas. Uh, the bifolia, the little Scylla sibirica, they all work well on pots as well. Hmm. Yeah, and I think forcing 
as you said, you get to smell them. They're up at nose height, you know, on a windowsill or wherever you're going to display them on a table near you. Um, whereas outside, you might never notice that fragrance. And I just thought of another benefit of forcing blooms indoors, and that's the deer and rabbits don't get to eat your little <laughs> iris reticulata because that happened to me last year. The rabbits just mowed down all the little iris reticulata and i never saw a bloom last year indeed well you know they they are just about most of the bulbs except any amaryllis plant family member are eaten by rabbits deer squirrels etc but uh, the amaryllis plant family members daffodils narcissus proper name daffodil nickname um and snowdrops, Galanthus proper name, snowdrop nickname, and Lycogem are all members of the Amaryllis family, and nothing touches them. So, mm -hmm. but the others, you do have a great point inside, unless you invite <laughs> your deer in for a <laughs> uh, a nip. Um, Not unless they broke through. No. Right. <laughs> and so, how about some combinations of maybe a daffodil and another one of the smaller bulbs? Yeah. Well, we we do a we have what we call a living flower arrangement workshop. And we layer five layers of bulbs in a pot with a color theme. And we'll pick a, a big, tall tulip. For instance, if we were doing one for forcing, I might pick apricot beauty uh, tulip, an early bloomer. Uh, lovely. I, I disagree with some of my Dutch friends. I think they're colorblind. The color isn't, doesn't remind me of apricots, but it's a lovely uh early pink and kind of mauve uh, colors, lovely combination, sweetly fragrant also. That would be the centerpiece. I'd do five in a 12-inch pot. I'd do five bulbs uh, touching each other in the center. And I'd put a little, so I'd put three inches of soil underneath at least. Then I would put some soil around them and I would look for a, a what we call a pink cup daffodil, which the pink is actually peach, salmon, or apricot shades of pink. Um, and I might use one called Accent. Accent was bred by one of my mentors, one of my father's friends, and it's a peachy pink and white daffodil. Uh, and then I would, and a little soil, I'd probably do... Uh, five of the tulips, I'd probably do seven. You typically do odd numbers in round pots. Seven of the daffodil, and then I'd put soil around them. So we're coming up in the pot each time we make a circle. And then I'd pick a, a lovely hyacinth, which I think has a great color echo. Now, I borrowed that term from Pamela Harper. She has a book that she wrote about flowers that pick up the color from each other. I would use Gypsy Queen Hyacinth. So, again, that peachy, salmony, apricot side of pink, the orange side of pink instead of the blue side of pink. And then um, we'd keep coming up a layer each time. And then I would probably do i might do crocus thomasinianus roseus which is a lovely pinkish little crocus and then probably anemone blanda pink charm for the last layer 
So we have five layers of bulbs in that pot, each with a color picking up the color off of each other. Sounds gorgeous. And it is fun. We do a lot of these workshops for groups. And um, they come here and we do we do them just about every other week here. Um, and they get to take a pot of bulbs home with them. And you're usually potting up like in a black plastic pot with great drainage, correct? Actually, we 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 don't do terracotta, which mm-hmm. is you know the favored thing for you know people who a um, little bit snobbish about their their proper things. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but we do a, a terracotta colored plastic pot, vinyl ah, pot. Okay. And it is reusable. <laughs> we believe in reusing, recycling, and repurposing. Yeah. When I see them at flower shows like Philadelphia, they're definitely in those little lower type of terracotta pots. They're kind of wider, broader, and maybe yeah, four inches pans. tall. And mm-hmm. I think bulb pans are the invention of the devil. They don't allow enough roots <laughs> to develop. So I disagree with the Brits on a number of different levels, mm-hmm. but... Anyhow, maybe they just throw their bulbs away when they're done. But I think the bulbs would bloom longer and last better in with enough soil. In a deeper one. Okay, good yes. to know. And if you don't like the look of the plastic pot, just find a nice basket or urn or something a similar size and slip it down in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when you can pull out those beautiful cachet pots that don't have drainage and pop them in there for a little bit. A little bit, but that mm-hmm. you just mentioned something that is important. Moisture is important. So when you're forcing, make sure your soil is moist to begin with. Don't need to rewater until the top layer dries out. Stick your finger in, and then when it's a little dry, an inch deep, but then moist, that's time to water again. So about once a week. And once they really start growing, then you shorten the time frame between waterings. So. Um, and, but you don't want to leave them waterlogged, you know, plants, roots need air as well as water. And if you drown them, they won't do as well. Mm-hmm. Good advice. Cause I am a habitual overwaterer, Brent. Yeah. We tend to kill plants <laughs> yeah. with kindness, don't we? Yes. Um, so <laughs> I'm moving guilty on. of that too, Kathy. I've done it too. <laughs> and moving on from forcing bulbs to forcing branches. Do you have any tips and favorite varieties of things to force into bloom from a cut branch? You know, there's so many early bloomers and one of my very favorites is um, Wintersweet. I think proper name, Wintersweet, the nickname, proper name, Chimonanthes, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's a lovely shrub that starts in January. But then I go to my Daphne, I go to Forsythia, named for somebody named Forsyth, right? Not Forsyth, <laughs> anyhow. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go to the cherries are in bloom right now. And they're lovely to cut those branches and bring them in and force them. Much anomalies are in bloom right now, are just coming in right now. So great addition to, but my magnolias, the stellata types, the Selangianas are later, but they're also a little bit too big. But the stellata magnolias are awesome. And then I have one, I can't remember its name. It used to be called a Michellia, but it starts in in January. It's amazing. And it's still, it got nipped by the freezes, but it's still blooming again now. 
So hmm. um, those are just some of, oh, and the winter jasmine. Jasmine, is it Nudiflorum? I can't yes, remember Nudiflorum. the proper name, mm-hmm. but that's a great one too. Yeah, those are great. And so you're just cutting them at a diagonal with yes. pruners or a knife and then just plunging them into maybe and lukewarm water. Tepid, yeah, mm-hmm. warm to the touch, tepid mm-hmm. water. Yep. And I agree with that. I think the less air that, you know, if the stem hardens off, it'll block any intake of water. So better to carry water with you. I like I like an old gallon jug that you cut everything off at the top except the handle part. And it's easy to carry around with you and you just plug them right in. Oh, and my camellias are great with with the with your spring flowering bulbs. Hmm. And so, when you cut the camellias, they already have a bud forming on them at that point. Yes, they do. Well, I want to see color with mm-hmm. most of the things. I I don't. I think they force better if you see a little color in that bud. Hmm. Yeah, because I can see some of the forsythia or forsythia, as you say, um, (laughs) almost bare branch, nothing at all. Just maybe a little bit of a nub raised up. Oh, well. And those will will force and bloom out pretty well. But then others, like some of the larger ornamentals, like the magnolia and camellia you mentioned, I think you definitely need to see some more formation before cutting those. Kathy, another that just came to mind is I've got an old-fashioned winter honeysuckle, mm. Lanicera fragrantissima, and it's so wonderful because of its fragrance also, like the winter sweet. The winter sweet has amazing fragrance. So, Oh, and I forgot the hamamelis. <laughs> the witch hazels are coming in this time of the year, and mm-hmm. they do wonderfully when I cut the branches and bring them in. Yeah, it's almost, you know, I feel like a crime to cut some of the witch hazel branches, though, because uh, I love them so much outside um, and so beautiful in color. But then you mine, get- some of mine are 20 feet tall and they need a little thinning <laughs> of their crowns. Yeah, in that case, then definitely give them a little bit of a pruning that way. Yeah. So I was going to ask you some bulb questions that we're getting. And the number one one that I'm getting, and probably you are as well, is I forgot to plant a bulb. You know, I found a bag in my garage. What do I do now? It's now February. And my my first thing is, is if you bought some onions or potatoes back in November, um, you know, you, you couldn't, they, they say, can I wait until next fall to plant them? And I say, well, onions or potatoes wouldn't last that long. They dry out and the bulbs will too. So hopefully yours haven't dried out too much and hopefully you stored them cool and not warm. So they got some of their fertilization, but go out right now and plant them in the next 15 minutes. <laughs> I'm teasing a little bit, but just as soon as possible, they'll root now in the cool soil and they may abort, they may have aborted their blooms, but maybe not if you <laughs> stored them cool in the garage instead of under the bed. Um, and you plant them now. If you hold your tongue right, they may bloom later for this first year, but definitely plant them as soon as possible. <laughs> Good advice. And yeah, definitely depends where they were stored. A cool, dry place, they have more chance of success. 
Yes, indeed. That, and if they they aborted their blooms, you'll still get foliage, and the solar collector should recharge the batteries, and they should bloom again next year. Hmm. And speaking of blooming again next year, I want to ask about waxed amaryllis and your opinions on that and whether you think those are worth trying to get to bloom again next year. Well, you have to take the wax away and once mm-hmm. they finish blooming and take the bulb out and put it in soil because if you left it in the wax, there's no gain whatsoever. They, they simply – the moisture will all be gone and the bulb will diminish in size dramatically. So as soon as they finish blooming, clip the old flowers off so if they did get pollinated by chance, they won't spend their energy making seeds, but then put them right into soil so they can root and hopefully we'll get some energy back for next year. It's a novel thing, but I, horticulturally, I don't think it's a sound practice. No, it's, you know, very much a gift type item and probably part of our disposable society. Yeah, we are a throwaway nation, aren't we? You know, like Becky's garden, Chesapeake Bay friendly garden, the premise is repurpose, recycle and reuse. So Mm -hmm. we don't use any chemicals and... You know, you you can see old toilets that are planters out there and a old corn crib, the, a crib that would did not allowed to use anymore, an old boat that broke her hole in her bottom, all is <laughs> containers in part of Becky's garden. Anyhow, they are containers, so mm-hmm. not too far offline. And fun. <laughs> <laughs> and so my last of the bulb questions that I get commonly this time of year are the foliage is up and we're getting a deep freeze. Will it be okay? Will it still bloom? Most of these spring flowering bulbs are montane plants. Some of them are from warmer climates. Those from warmer climates stand a harder chance of a deep freeze. And deep freeze, how cold? Well, Typically, most daffodils and tulips can take it down into the high teens without hurting them. Um, And if you're expecting it lower, old sheets, something lightweight to drape over them. Commercially, there's a product called Reme. It's a spun fiber that's used in the industry to cover. It's what we cover all of our pots of bulbs with that we're overwintering. We cover them with Reme, and that's a thermal break, uh, frost break. Um, and that actually protects what's underneath. And um, so just if you're expecting a real cold, take an old sheet or some very lightweight fabric and cover them. And that will, will, will protect them from that thermal drying frost. And that's the biggest problem. Great. I think a lot of people are just so worried because they think it's coming up a few weeks earlier than it has in the past, maybe, and it's going to get really cold at night. So they're very paranoid about their little baby bulbs. And that's a question we get frequently. And and I laughingly say, well, just, you know, go outside, take your thumb and push it back in again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they said, what? <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. But just... um. Put some pine needles around the leaves. Don't cover them. Don't cover the ends, but uh, mm-hmm. but 
you know, just leaves around them. Leaves are great insulators. And hopefully you've kept them in your garden. You haven't carted them off to the dump. Um, but leaves are great for insulator. <laughs> or a handful of like leaf grow or leaf compost put around the base yeah. also could, could yes. do well. Great. So what is going on at Brent and Becky Bulbs in this early springtime? I know this is a big time of year for you all. Well, it's coming. Denise has just maybe finished up the next cat. No, Jay's shaking his head. She hasn't finished yet. She's still working <laughs> on the spring flowering catalog. The summer flowering catalog um, is out. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, and uh, so that's available. The bulb shop opened just last Saturday, February 1st, at a grand opening. And uh, lots of people came and a lot of potted up bulbs. And we, we actually pot up a lot of the surplus bulbs at the end of the season. So they will be available in the, in the shop and outside in the greenhouse and outside as the weather warms up for people to take home and enjoy on their tables and then put in their gardens. Um, they've got a lot of lectures coming up, a lot of workshops coming. Check our website to, on Where's Brent and you can find out uh, where we're going. The uh, couple of really fun ones, the American Daffodil Society is having its convention in Atlanta, Georgia on March 9th through the 12th. Jay and I will be driving a van, or Jay will be driving. I'll just be the passenger. We're taking probably 200 pots of bulbs that we have potted up ahead of time and that the Gloucester Daffodil Society, Gloucester Daffodil Society is a moving organization. There were, I think, 70 people there yesterday when I gave them a little rundown on what to do with their potted bulbs. But uh, they will be at the American Daffodil Society convention and show. That's uh, March 9th through the 12th. And then Gloucester itself has a wonderful daffodil festival uh, where there's a parade. They cordon off Main Street. There's a parade. There are lots of vendors. But then the Gloucester Daffodil Club puts on the Daffodil Show on April the 1st to the 2nd. I will be doing several seminars before these for people who want to bring in their daffodils that they cannot identify, and I will do my best to try to help to give them their correct names. And um, we're doing this also in Memphis, Tennessee, in... Uh, toward the middle of March at the Dixon Garden and Gallery. Uh, Jay and I are going to judge several shows. We're going to judge the Daffodil uh, Convention together. We're going down to do the Virginia, the Garden Club of Virginia show, which is in, I think, Virginia Beach this spring. Mm-hmm. Um don't have those exact dates, but look up uh, the Garden Club of Virginia and you'll discover that. We're going to Washington. We're coming to the Washington Daffodil Society show to judge. Oh, and, uh, and just in a week or two, Becky and I are going down to Miami. There's a garden communicators event there at a, at a spring show at Costa uh, Growers. And we'll look forward to seeing several of our garden communicator friends there. So Great. We, we, we're going to be hopping around. <laughs> Not busy at all, right? 
Yeah, but that's what I like. I enjoy <laughs> I like people and I like plants. So I'm blessed. And I married well. You know, <laughs> Becky is in charge. Jay is their general manager, does all the communication, all the IT stuff, all the communications. Denise runs the shop, coordinates events. I get to play in my garden and I do have a cell phone. That's my office. And I get the customer's horticultural questions. So I'm blessed to be able to do what I like to do. I like people and plants. Wonderful. And how can our listeners find out more about Brent and Becky Bulbs? Jay, can you answer that? or or? Yeah, you can find us online at brentandbeckysbulbs.com. Or you can call us toll-free, 877-661-2852. Thank you, Jay. And thank you, Brent, for sharing all about forcing bulbs and giving that great bulb advice. And any final thoughts as we approach springtime 2023? Well, Kathy, thank you, because what you do is brightening people's lives. You're introducing them to something that they might not have tried. Um, You're giving them a a happy game to play. And, you know, gardening is about playing. It's not about working. And I think you're making it fun for people. And we appreciate what you're doing. So thank you very much. Thank you. And our motto is plant bulbs and harvest smiles. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Daphne plant profile, Daphne, Daphne species, is a small shrub with highly fragrant flowers in late winter and early spring. Many of them are evergreen. Daphne shrubs are hardy to USDA zones 4 to 9. Daphnes need great drainage. Plant them in a raised bed or on a slight slope. If you have clay soil, amend it with lots of leaf compost and spread a layer of poultry grit or expanded slate in the bottom of the planting hole. Be careful not to overwater it, but note that it should not be left to dry out as that will damage its delicate feeder roots. They need morning sun and afternoon shade to thrive. Plant it in a protected location that is at least shielded from cold, drying winds. Daphnes don't need a lot of pruning but you can occasionally trim them to maintain their shape. Daphnes are known to be temperamental and are sensitive to certain pathogens and root rot. They are prone to sudden, inexplicable death. They also resent being moved, so plant them well and do not move them again. Note that the berries and all parts of Daphneodora are poisonous, so be cautious about planting them where young children or pets may eat them. Daphneodora grows three to four feet tall with two to four foot spread and forms a dense mound. Daphneodora aurea marginata 
is the most aromatic of the species, as well as much hardier than other cultivars. Daphne cross Berkwoodi, Carol Mackey, is a genetic mutation or chimera of Daphne Berkwoodi Somerset. It is prized for its stunning variegation and fragrant bloom. It was originally discovered in a New Jersey garden. Daphne, you can grow that. What's new this week? Well, first, I want to thank our latest listener supporter, April Bain. Thank you, April, for supporting this podcast. In the home garden, my February gold daffodils have leapt into bloom, and that is not something I normally see in February. Usually they show up the first week of March, so I'm excited to see them and the crocus and the hellebores and other early spring blooming plants. In the local gardening world, some upcoming events you might want to attend include the Davidsville Green Expo 2023 taking place on March 25th from 10.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. at Homestead Gardens in Davidsonville, Maryland. You can find out more about that at homesteadgardens.com under the Upcoming Events tab. It's an annual event that raises awareness about environmental issues and highlights environmentally friendly products, services, and ideas. And I'll be there in the garden books section, signing copies of Ground Cover Revolution and the Urban Garden. So I hope to see you there. Other upcoming events that you might want to attend and save these dates on your calendar include the Plant Swap Houseplants, Cuttings, and Containers, Saturday, April 8th at Green Spring Gardens, and that's 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. It's 16 years old and up, and that's their second annual plant swap. The fee is $15 per person, and you can register for that at fairfaxcounty.gov parks and then park takes. And some tours to put on your calendar. The Maryland Home and House and Garden Pilgrimage is 2023 four Saturdays or weekends in a row. You can find the full details about those at mhgp.org. And the tour features homes and gardens throughout Maryland in April and May. And it starts with Saturday, April 29th in Charles County. Then Saturday, May 6th is Middletown in Frederick County. Saturday, May 13th, Queen Anne's County. And then Sunday, May 21st, Federal Hill in Baltimore City. Happy gardening! Get low-maintenance alternative salons with the new book Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. 
included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Greetings, it's Cherry at Cottage in the Court. I'd like to share a few last words to the listeners of this wonderful podcast. Let's talk about sustainability. A sustainable garden benefits the environment and limits negatively impacting our natural resources. How can we as homeowners and landscapers achieve a sustainable practice in the landscape? Well, we can reduce the use of lawns. After all, all that fertilizing does everything for green lawns, but nothing for our waterways. Let's consider reducing lawn and reducing the use of fertilizers in that said lawn. What about planting drought-tolerant plants or xeric plant material that requires less water? Reducing the use of water in the landscape would be meaningful, and you can still have blooms. Trust me on this. Creating naturalistic plantings to help feed birds and other wildlife should just be a part of our everyday practice. After all, there's nothing better than sitting inside in the winter, looking out the window, and watching birds feed off of seed heads that you've left standing over the winter. By just utilizing a few of these practices, we are sure to be sharing by example how to have a sustainable landscape and even have time to sit back and enjoy the garden and not just work in it. Those are my last words. I hope you find them helpful. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm 
slash GardenDC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to WashingtonGardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.